Our goal that sent me to sleep is to help the world get a good night's rest. Everyone deserves that. So if you're enjoying the show, please make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. And if you have a moment, review the show on Apple Podcasts. All of this helps the show reach new listeners. Thank you so much for your support. Good evening. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the world's sleepiest podcast. I'm your host, Andrew. I'm here to help calm your mind and send you into a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 1, Chapters 20-22 to of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. So let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 20 The whole of that day Anna spent at home, that's to say, at the Oblinskys, and received no one, though some of her acquaintances had already heard of her arrival and came to call the same day. Anna spent the whole morning with Dolly and the children. She merely sent a brief note to her brother to tell him that he must not fail to dine at home. Come, God is merciful, she wrote. Oblinsky did dine at home. Oblinsky? Oblinsky did dine at home. The conversation was general, and his wife, speaking to him, addressed him as Steva, as she had not done before. In the relations of the husband and wife, the same estrangement still remained, but there was no talk now of separation, and Stepan Arkadyevich saw the possibility of explanation and reconciliation. Immediately after dinner, Kitty came in. She knew Anna Arkadyevich, but only very slightly and she came to her sisters with some trepidation at the prospect of meeting this fashionable Petersburg lady, of whom everyone spoke so highly. But she made a favourable impression on Anna Arkadyevich. She saw that at once. Anna was unmistakably admiring her loveliness and her youth, Before Kitty knew where she was, she found herself not merely under Anna's sway, but in love with her, as young girls do fall in love with older and married women. Anna was not like a fashionable lady, nor the mother of a boy of eight years old. In the elasticity of her movements, the freshness 
and the unflagging eagerness which persisted in her face and broke out in her smile and her glance. She would rather have passed for a girl of twenty had it not been for a serious and at times mournful look in her eyes which struck and attracted Kitty. Kitty felt that Anna was perfectly simple and was concealing nothing but that she had another, higher world of interests inaccessible to her, complex and poetic. After dinner, when Dolly went away to her own room, Anna rose quickly and went up to her brother, who was just lighting a cigar. Steva, she said to him, winking gaily, crossing him and glancing towards the door. Go, and God help you. He threw down the cigar, understanding her, and departed through the doorway. When Stepan Arkadyevich had disappeared, she went back to the sofa where she had been sitting, surrounded by the children. Either because the children saw that their mother was fond of this aunt, or that they felt a special charm in her themselves, the two elder ones, and the younger following their lead, as children so often do, had clung about their new aunt since before dinner, and would not leave her side. And it had become a sort of game among them, to sit as close as possible to their aunt, to touch her, hold her little hand, kiss it, play with her ring, or even touch the flounce of her skirt. Come, come, as we were sitting before, said Anna Arkadyevich, sitting down in her place, and again Grisha poked his little face under her arm and nestled with his head on her gown, beaming with pride and happiness. And when is your next ball? she asked Kitty. Next week, and a splendid ball, one of those balls where one always enjoys oneself. Why, are there balls where one always enjoys oneself? Anna said with a tender irony. It's strange, but there are. At the Bobrashev's, one always enjoys oneself, and at the Nikitin's too, while at the Mezkov's, it's always dull. Haven't you noticed it? No, my dear. For me there are no balls now where one enjoys oneself, said Anna and Kitty detected in her eyes that mysterious world which was not open to her. For me, there are some less dull and tiresome. How can you be dull at a ball? Why should I not be dull at a ball? inquired Anna. Kitty perceived that Anna knew what answer would follow. Because you always look nicer than anyone. Anna had the faculty of blushing. She blushed a little 
and said, In the first place, it's never so, and secondly, if it were, what difference would it make to me? Are you coming to this ball? asked Kitty. I imagine it won't be possible to avoid going. Here, take it, she said to Tanya, who was pulling the loosely fitted ring off her white, slender-tipped finger. I shall be so glad if you go. I should so like to see you at the ball. Anyway, if I do go, I shall comfort myself with the thought that it's a pleasure to you. Grisha, don't pull my hair. It's untidy enough without that, she said, putting up a stray lock, which Grisha had been playing with. I imagine you at the ball in lilac. And why in lilac, precisely? asked Anna, smiling. Now, children... Run along, run along. Do you hear? Miss Hool is calling you to tea. She said, tearing the children from her and sending them off to the dining room. I know why you press me to come to the ball. You expect a great deal of this ball and you want everyone to be there to take part in it. How do you know? Yes. Oh, what a happy time you're at, pursued Anna. I remember, and I know that blue haze like the mist on the mountains in Switzerland. That mist which covers everything in that blissful time, when childhood is just ending, and out of that vast circle, happy and gay, There is a path growing narrower and narrower, and it is delightful and alarming to enter the ballroom, bright and splendid as it is. Who has not been through it? Kitty smiled without speaking. But how did she go through it? How I should like to know all her love story, thought Kitty. Recalling the unromantic appearance of Alexei Alexandrovich, her husband. I know something. Steva told me, and I congratulate you. I liked him so much, Anna continued. I met Vronsky at the railway station. Oh, was he there? asked Kitty, blushing. What was it Steva told you? Steva gossiped about it all, and I should be so glad. I travelled yesterday with Vronsky's mother, she went on, and his mother talked without a pause of him. He's her favourite. I know mothers are partial, but... What did his mother tell you? Oh, a great deal and I know that he's her favourite. Still one can see how chivalrous he is. Well, for instance, she told me that he had wanted to give up all his property to his brother, 
that he had done something extraordinary when he was quite a child, saved a woman out of the water. He's a hero in fact, said Anna, smiling and recollecting the two hundred roubles he had given at the station. But she did not tell Kitty about the two hundred roubles. For some reason, it was disagreeable to her to think of it. She felt that there was something that had to do with her in it, and something that ought not to have been. She pressed me very much to go and see her, Anna went on. Steva is staying a long while in Dolly's room, thank God, Anna added, changing the subject and getting up. Kitty fancied, displeased with something. No, I'm first. No, I, screamed the children, who had finished tea, running up to their aunt Anna. All together, said Anna, and she ran laughing to meet them, and embraced and swung round all the throng of swarming children, shrieking with delight. Chapter 21 Dolly came out of her room to the tea of the grown-up people. Stepan Arkadyevich did not come out. He must have left his wife's room by the other door. I am afraid you'll be cold upstairs, observed Dolly, addressing Anna. I want to move you downstairs and we shall be nearer. Oh, please, don't trouble about me, answered Anna, looking intently into Dolly's face, trying to make out whether there had been a reconciliation or not. It will be lighter for you here, answered her sister-in-law. I assure you that I sleep everywhere, and always like a marmot. What's the question? inquired Stepan Arkadyevich, coming out of his room and addressing his wife. From his tone, both Kitty and Anna knew that a reconciliation had taken place. I want to move Anna downstairs, but we must hang up blinds. No one knows how to do it. I must see to it myself, answered Dolly, addressing him. God knows whether they are fully reconciled, thought Anna, hearing her tone, cold and composed. Oh, nonsense, Dolly, always making difficulties, answered her husband. Come, I'll do it all if you like. Yes, they must be reconciled, thought Anna. I know how you do everything, answered Dolly. You tell Matvi to do what can't be done, and go away yourself, leaving him to make a muddle of everything, and her habitual, mocking smile curved the corners of Dolly's lips as she spoke. Full, full reconciliation, full, thought Anna. Thank God, and rejoicing that she was the cause of it, she went up to Dolly 
and kissed her. Not at all. Why do you always look down on me and Matvey? said Stepan Arkadyevich, smiling hardly perceptibly and addressing his wife. The whole evening Dolly was, as always, a little mocking in her tone to her husband, while Stepan Arkadyevich was happy and cheerful, but not so as to seem as though, having been forgiven, he had forgotten his offence. At half-past nine o'clock, a particularly joyful and pleasant family conversation over the tea-table at Oblonsky's was broken up by an apparently simple incident. But this simple incident, for some reason, struck everyone as strange. Talking about common acquaintances in Petersburg, Anna got up quickly She is in my album, she said, and, by the way, I'll show you my Suyosia, she added with a mother's smile of pride. Towards ten o'clock, when she usually said goodnight to her son, and often before going to a ball, put him to bed herself, she felt depressed at being so far from him. And whatever she was talking about, she kept coming back in thought to her curly-headed Seosia. She longed to look at his photograph and talk of him. Seizing the first pretext, she got up and with her light, resolute step, went for her album. The stairs up to her room came out on the landing of the great warm main staircase. Just as she was leaving the drawing room, a ring was heard at the hall. Who can that be? said Dolly. It's early for me to be fetched, and as for anyone else it's late, observed Kitty. Sure to be someone with papers for me, put in Stepan Arkadyevich. When Anna was passing the top of the staircase, a servant was running up to announce the visitor, while the visitor himself was standing under a lamp. Anna glancing down at once recognized Vronsky, and a strange feeling of pleasure, and at the same time of dread of something, stirred in her heart. He was standing still, not taking off his coat, pulling something out of his pocket. At the instant when she was just facing the stairs, he raised his eyes, caught sight of her, and into the expression of his face there passed a shade of embarrassment and dismay. With a slight inclination of her head, she passed. Hearing Stepan Arkadyevich's loud voice behind her, calling him to come up, and the quiet, soft, and composed voice of Vronsky refusing. When Anna returned with the album, he was already gone, 
and Stepan Arkadyevich was telling them that he had called to inquire about the dinner they were giving next day, to celebrate who had just arrived. And nothing would induce him to come up. What a queer fellow he is, added Stepan Arkadyevich. Kitty blushed. She thought that she was the only person who knew why he had come and why he would not come up. He has been at home, she thought, and didn't find me, and thought I should be here, but he did not come up because he thought it late, and Anna's here. All of them looked at each other, saying nothing, and began to look at Anna's album. There was nothing either exceptional or strange in a man's calling at half past nine on a friend to inquire details of a proposed dinner party and not coming in, but it seemed strange to all of them. Above all, it seemed strange and not right to Anna. Chapter 22 The ball was only just beginning as Kitty and her mother walked up the great staircase, flooded with light and lined with flowers and footmen in powder and red coats. From the rooms came a constant, steady hum, as from a hive, and the rustle of movement, and while on the landing between the trees... They gave last touches to their hair and dresses before the mirror. They heard from the ballroom the careful, distinct notes of the fiddles of the orchestra beginning the first waltz. A little old man in civilian dress, arranging his grey curls before another mirror and diffusing an odour of scent, stumbled against them on the stairs and stood aside, evidently admiring Kitty, whom he did not know. A beardless youth, one of those society youths whom the old Prince Shabatsky called Young Bucks, in an exceedingly open waistcoat, straightening his white tie as he went, bowed down to them, and after running by, came back and asked Kitty for a quadrille. As the first quadrille had already been given to Vronsky, she had to promise this youth the second. An officer, buttoning his glove, stood aside in the doorway and stroking his moustache, admired rosy Kitty. Although her dress, her coiffure, and all the preparations for the ball had cost Kitty great trouble and consideration. At this moment, she walked into the ballroom in her elaborate jewel dress over a pink slip, as easily and simply as though all the rosettes and lace, all the minute details of her attire, had not cost her or her family a moment's attention as though she had been born in that tulle and lace, with her hair done up 
high on her head, and a rose and two leaves on the top of it. When, just before entering the ballroom, the princess, her mother, tried to turn right side out of the ribbon of her sash, Kitty had drawn back a little. She felt that everything must be right of itself, and graceful, and nothing could need setting straight. It was one of Kitty's best days. Her dress was not uncomfortable anywhere. Her lace berth did not droop anywhere. Her rosettes were not crushed nor torn off. Her pink slipper with high, hollowed-out heels did not pinch, but gladdened her feet and the thick rolls of fair chignon kept up on her head as if they were her own hair. All the three buttons buttoned up without tearing on the long glove that covered her hand without concealing its lines. The black velvet of her locket nestled with special softness round her neck. That velvet was delicious, at home, looking at her neck in the looking-glass, Kitty had felt that the velvet was speaking, about all the rest that might be a doubt, but the velvet was delicious. Kitty smiled here too, at the ball, when she glanced at it in the glass, Her bare shoulders and arms gave Kitty a sense of chill marble, a feeling she particularly liked. Her eyes sparkled, and her rose lips could not keep from smiling from the consciousness of her own attractiveness. She had scarcely entered the ballroom and reached the throng of ladies, all tulle, ribbons, lace and flowers, waiting to be asked to dance. Kitty was never one of that throng. When she was asked for a waltz, and asked by the best partner, the first star in the hierarchy of the ballroom, a renowned director of dances, a married man, handsome and well-built, Yegoroska Korsunsky, He had only just left the Countess Benina, with whom he had danced the first half of the waltz, and, scanning his kingdom, that is to say, a few couples who had started dancing, he caught sight of Kitty entering and flew up to her with that particular easy amble which is confined to directors of balls. Without even asking her if she cared to dance, he put out his arm to encircle her slender waist. She looked round for someone to give her fan to, and their hostess, smiling to her, took it. How nice you've come in good time, he said to her, embracing her waist. Such a bad habit to be late. Bending her left hand, she laid it on his shoulder, and her little feet in their pink slippers began swift 
lightly, lightly, and rhythmically moving over the slippery floor in time to the music. It's a rest to waltz with you, he said to her, as they fell into the first low steps of the waltz. It's exquisite, such lightness, precision. He said to her the same thing he had said to almost all his partners whom he knew well. She smiled at his praise and continued to look about the room over his shoulder. She was not like a girl at her first ball, for whom all faces in the ballroom melt into one vision of fairyland. And she was not a girl who had gone the stale round of balls till every face in the ballroom was familiar and tiresome. But she was in the middle stage between these two. She was excited, and at the same time, she had sufficient self-possession to be able to observe. In the left corner of the ballroom, she saw the cream of society gathered together. There, incredibly naked, was the beautiful lady, Korsunsky's wife. There was the lady of the house. There shone the bald head of Crivin, always to be found where the best people were. In that direction gazed the young men, not venturing to approach. There, too, she descried Steva, and there she saw the exquisite figure and head of Anna in a black velvet gown. And he was there. Kitty had not seen him since the evening she refused Levin. With her long-sighted eyes, she knew him at once, and was even aware that he was looking at her. Another turn, eh? You're not tired, said Korsunsky, a little out of breath. No, thank you. Where shall I take you? Madame Karenina's here, I think. Take me to her. Wherever you command. And Korsunsky began waltzing with measured steps straight towards the group in the left corner, continually saying, Pardon, madames, pardon, pardon, madames, and steering his course through the sea of lace, tulle and ribbon, and not disarranging a feather. He turned his partner sharply round, so that her slim ankles, in light transparent stockings, were exposed to view, and her train floated out in fan shape and covered Kriven's knees. Korsunsky bowed, set straight his open shirt front, and gave her his arm to conduct her to Anna Arkadyeva. Kitty, flushed, took her train from Kriven's knee, and, a little giddy, looked round, seeking Anna. Anna was not in lilac, as Kitty had so urgently wished, but in black, low-cut, 
velvet gown, showing her full throat and shoulders that looked as though carved in old ivory, and her rounded arms with tiny, slender wrists. The whole gown was trimmed with velveteen japur. On her head, among her black hair, her own, with no false additions, was a little wreath of pansies, and a bouquet of the same in the black ribbon of her sash among white lace. Her coiffure was not striking. All that was noticeable was the little willful tendrils of her curly hair that would always break free about her neck and temples. Round her well-cut, strong neck was a thread of pearls. Kitty had been seeing Anna every day. She adored her, and had pictured her invariably in lilac. But now, seeing her in black, she felt that she had not fully seen her charm. She saw her now as someone quite new and surprising to her. Now she understood that Anna could not have been in lilac, and that her charm was that she just always stood out against her attire, that her dress could never be noticeable on her, and her black dress, with its sumptuous lace, was not noticeable on her. It was only the frame, and all that was seen was she, simple, natural, elegant, and at the same time gay and eager. She was standing holding herself, as always, very erect, and when Kitty drew near the group, she was speaking to the master of the house, her head slightly turned towards him. No, I don't throw stones, she was saying, in answer to something. Though I can't understand it, she went on, shrugging her shoulders, and she turned at once with a soft smile of protection towards Kitty. With a flying, feminine glance, she scanned her attire and made a movement of her head, hardly perceptible but understood by Kitty, signifying approval of her dress and looks. You came into the room dancing, she added. This is one of my most faithful supporters, said Korsunsky, bowing to Anna Arkadyevna, whom he had not yet seen. The princess helps to make balls happy and successful, Anna Arkadyevna, a waltz, he said, bending down to her. Why, have you met? inquired their host. Is there anyone we have not met? My wife and I are like white walls. Everyone knows us, answered Korsunsky. A waltz, Anna Arkadyevna. I don't dance when it's possible not to dance, she said. But tonight it's impossible, answered Korsunsky. At that instant, Vronsky came up. 
Well, since it's impossible tonight, let us start, she said, not noticing Vronsky's bow, and she hastily put her hand on Korsansky's shoulder. What is she vexed with him about, thought Kitty, discerning that Anna had intentionally not responded to Vronsky's bow. Vronsky went up to Kitty, reminding her of the first quadrille, and expressing his regret that he had not seen her all this time. Kitty gazed in admiration at Anna waltzing, and listened to him. She expected him to ask her for a waltz, but he did not, and she glanced wonderingly at him. He flushed slightly, and hurriedly asked her to waltz, but he had not only just put his arm around her waist and taken the first step when the music suddenly stopped. Kitty looked into his face, which was so close to her own, and long afterwards, for several years after, that look, full of love, to which he made no response, cut her to the heart with an agony of shame. Pardon, pardon, waltz, waltz, shouted Korsunsky from the other side of the room, and seizing the first lady he came across, he began dancing himself. <laughs>